about 10 years ago, there was a, an online publication that asked a group of rabbis this question, are Jews still expecting a Messiah? The 10 responses, 10 different rabbis, whole broad spectrum of Judaism, out of that three clearly stated some acknowledgement of a personal Messiah coming. All of the rest offered some variation of the idea that if, if we're all just better people, if we love others, if we practice justice and mercy, then, then we will inaugurate a, a messianic age. One, one rabbi put it like this, as Jews, we are, each other, we are each God's partner in the creation and the ongoing perfection of the world. God calls upon each of us to heed the prophet's call to heal the sick, feed the hungry, fight injustice, and bring about a time of peace, prosperity, and wholeness. This work gives us hope and looks ahead to the messianic time. An individual Messiah cannot and will not do that for us. We are all part of this messianic process. The confusion over the coming of the Messiah goes all the way back in Jewish history. We are blessed by being able to see in the Gospels the fulfillment of the coming of Jesus Christ, but we can go back 700 years before Jesus to the times of Isaiah to see that there was already confusion about the Messiah and the expectations of who he would be. Most did expect a king, someone in the line of David, someone who would inaugurate a great era for the nation of Israel, someone who would bring great glory to the nation. And that's why in the 8th century BC, one of the, one of the prominent figures in this expectation may well have been King Hezekiah. We talked about him last Sunday and about his role in leading the nation of Judah. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, helps to fill out the description of the Messiah for us. We've already been through the first portion, the first chapters of Isaiah, and we know starting back in chapter 7, he begins to describe this one who is coming, this one who will be Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin, uh, this one who would be the Lord's servant, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father. All of those, those things are sort of painted into the description of the Messiah way back in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. And yet when Hezekiah comes to the throne for himself around 716 BC, he starts to do good stuff. He starts to reform the nation. He starts to tear down the idolatry and begin to focus people back on the worship of Yahweh. And there is a remnant that is trusting in the Lord that is thinking, could this be the one? Could Hezekiah be the one in the line of David who God has sent to be that servant. We studied last week, chapters 36 and 37, what could arguably be considered the high point in Hezekiah's life and reign as king, when he leads the nation in its response to the Assyrians. They are descending on Judah. They are getting closer to Jerusalem. And Hezekiah gives us a marvelous example of trusting in Yahweh of bowing before the king, of seeking godly counsel, of looking to magnify God's glory. But then we come to chapters 38 and 39. When we started this series, I, I said to you way back when that we would get through chapter 39, then we take a break for the summer because there's sort of a natural break point in Isaiah from chapter 39 to chapter 40. And starting with chapter 40, we really move toward this coming servant. Isaiah is looking very much forward to one who is coming. But, but chapter 39 sort of wraps up the business of the early portion of Isaiah and particularly wraps up the story of Hezekiah. 
Chapters 38 and 39 really serve as a prelude to the rest of Isaiah. They set that stage by effectively taking Hezekiah out of the picture as the possibility of being the Messiah. God used Hezekiah to deliver the people. In a sense, though, that that deliverance, that work through Hezekiah is pointing forward to a greater deliverer, a, a savior who will come, who will be far greater than Hezekiah, one who will be sinless. But these two chapters set the stage. And they, they leave us at the end knowing there must be one who is greater than Hezekiah. There must be one who is righteous, who is just, who is a true Savior, and who will ultimately bear the sins of his people. Hezekiah's story is a reminder to us that, that even the best appearing people, even those who look like they've got it together, those who we might look at and think, wow, that person seems to be godly in so many ways, Hezekiah is a reminder that they still fall short. They still turn back to self. They still battle with sin. They still try to steal glory that they don't deserve. They still do things that displease God. We are sinners in need of the gracious work of Jesus Christ. And so let me start. If you're there, Isaiah 38. I'm just going to read the first three verses. Isaiah 38, 1 through 3. It says, In those days... Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. It's really important, and we'll get to this, where this fits in Hezekiah's life. I didn't make the timeline again this week or adjust the timeline, but for those of you who were here last week, you, you sort of have that picture of Hezekiah taking the throne singularly from Ahaz in around 716, and then in 701, he is facing the Assyrians. Well, we'll get to where this fits in, in all of that. Um, but suffice it to say that at this point, when Isaiah comes to him, when Hezekiah is sick near the point of death, he's in his 30s, and he has no child. He has no son to carry on the throne. And so that compounds everything that's happening in his life at this moment is he's not, we tend to think of kings on the throne as sort of old, wise, you know, the, the long white beard, and they've been there for a long time. This is a, a relatively young man in the prime of his life, and he is the king over Judah, He's inherited the kingdom from his father Ahaz, who has done poorly on many counts. And now Hezekiah has begun spiritual reforms, and things are, are doing well, and the nation is doing well, and it is at peace. And in the midst of this, with no heir, no one else now from the line of David, there's no talk in Scripture of Hezekiah having a brother, that Ahaz had another son. If Hezekiah dies, that's it. That, that, as far as he can see, that's the end of the line of David, and he is dying in the prime of his life. And so weeping is always understandable when the, the diagnosis is such as it is here where it's terminal. But you compound Hezekiah's grief with the fact that he is a relatively young man who has tried to please the Lord and who now has no son, and he is about to die. This is a terrible moment. And in his grief... We see briefly, he cries out to God. He doesn't specifically ask for a reprieve. What he does instead is says, remember me 
remember that I have been faithful, that I have been wholehearted, that, that I have done good things. That, that's essentially the, the nature of the prayer that Isaiah records for us. Hezekiah was described in scripture as a good king who did do righteous things, who was faithful in many ways. And this is the hour of his greatest sorrow. And so we can, we can give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt in terms of this prayer. But it's helpful when we're reading this prayer and seeing his response to, to remember ourselves that God's hearing and answering of our prayers does not depend on us coming to him with some sort of resume of performance. We're not trying to, to win God's ear by saying, God, I've done this and I've done that, and, and therefore I, I need you to respond to me and hear me. I think Hezekiah struggles in the same way we often do. We want to commend ourselves in some way. We want God to see that we have integrity, that we have service, that we've shown faithfulness in the midst of trials. And so we sort of bring that, that sort of good works to say, look, God, when in fact, the reality is God is a merciful, loving, heavenly father, and he urges us to cry out to him. He urges us to speak to him in prayer. Because it's worth noting that when Yahweh does respond, he doesn't say anything about Hezekiah's faithfulness or wholeheartedness or good works. He doesn't say, yep, you're right. What it says is he heard the prayer and he saw the weeping. So he is a father who loves his children and he sees and hears his child in need and he responds to that. Now, before we, we leave behind this opening part, I just want you to think for a moment on the first words that the Lord said through Isaiah to, to Hezekiah. Set your house in order. It's a, it's a command in the Hebrew. Order your house. The, the language is, is sort of will language in the sense that it's basically saying you need to give your final instructions. You need to say the things you need to say about what happens next and, and, and give that sort of um, explanation to the people around you. And so I'll just ask you the same thing I'm thinking as I'm reading that passage. Is my house in order? Is your house in order? And I don't mean, do you have a will? This isn't an advertisement for a lawyer at this point. Have you written a will? Is your house in order? Have you said the things you need to say? Have you, have you reconciled with people that, at least as far as it depends on you, have you endeavored to be at peace with those who are around you and sought to reconcile with that a family member or that loved one that you have not been speaking with for a long time? Have you, have you said things that you need to say? Have you passed down the truth of, of who Christ is to you? Have you shared that with others? Is your house in order? We're, we're not sovereign. We're not omniscient. We're far from it. And so we will never get this completely right and say everything that needs to be said perfectly in its timing. But Hezekiah's story is a reminder to us of what James teaches us, and that is our lives are like vapors. They're like mist that, that we sometimes in the prime, like Hezekiah, think will go on forever. And the reality is they can quickly be taken from us. And so is your house in order? Are you ready to depart? Verse 4 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer and I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Syria and will defend this city. Verse six is the, the verse that should cause you to pause if you're thinking about your chronology of the book of Isaiah and the history of what's gone on here because we've already read how God delivered 
the, the city from the hands of the Assyrians through Hezekiah. We read that in chapters 36 and 37. God has, at least in terms of Isaiah's record, has already done this, and yet now he's saying that this is a future promise to Hezekiah. And the reason for that is chapters 36 through 39 are not neatly in the chronological order that we're so used to. We want to see stories unfold. This is more like the the TV drama where you're, you're at one point and then you flash back to another point in the person's life. You sort of back up a little bit and, and you get some of the backstory. And that's what Isaiah is doing here and not simply for poetic reasons or, or for dramatic reasons. The events in chapter 38 and 39, what we're reading now, Hezekiah's sickness and then his engagement with the Babylonians, all happened before the, the Assyrians came and surrounded the city. And so Hezekiah is king in 716. This is somewhere around 711, 710 BC. This is about a decade before the Assyrians will come. And so it, it is a time of, of relative peace. 2 Kings chapter 20 tells us Isaiah, after he had come and said, set your house in order, left Hezekiah's presence, and it says he was still in the middle court of the king's residence when God spoke to him. So Hezekiah immediately began to cry out to the Lord, Isaiah immediately hears from God who says, go back into the house and give him this assurance that he will be healed, he will have 15 more years of life, and I will even, he'll go on in verses 7 and 8, I will even give him a sign to show him that this is all going to happen. This is one of those passages that theologically should help us think about the, the interplay between God being sovereign and us praying. At times you'll get that question, why pray if God's sovereign? If all things work after the counsel of his will, why should I plead to God? Why should I appeal to God? We've got passages like Psalm 139, Job 14, that all describe man's days as numbered, as being decreed by God, him knowing the end from the beginning. And so all of that is, is fixed in God's sovereignty and so it's not like Hezekiah sort of twisted God's arm and, and, and wept enough that he was suddenly given a bonus that God hadn't initially anticipated because God is sovereign. Yet what's also clear is God did respond to Hezekiah's prayer, that he prays and God sends Isaiah back in. This is one of those places where we need to hold the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And we need to understand that scripture clearly teaches both, that God is sovereign, God is the ruler over all things, that God works all things after the counsel of his will, and yet we are responsible. Our, our prayers are heard by God. We are urged to pray and to make supplication, to come before the Lord when we are anxious and to pour out what's on our hearts. It's one of our responsibilities. John Oswald writes, the simple fact is that the Bible teaches both that God is sovereign and that humans have the capacity to make real choices. Any attempt on our part to reduce these teachings to simple logic will inevitably do harm to one or the other. We need to hold both. God is sovereign. He had numbered the days of Hezekiah's life, and yet God had also ordained that Hezekiah would pray in this way, and that Hezekiah's prayer would be part of God's sovereign plan for his life so that Hezekiah would ultimately live long enough to see Judah's deliverance and to see a son who was born to him. 
Verses 7 and 8 go on and it describes the sign that God gives to Hezekiah. The, the real reason for this and why this is important is because you should remember Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, when Isaiah goes to him and says, God will deliver you. Ask God for a sign. And what did Ahaz do? Oh, I, I can't do that. This sort of holier-than-thou approach. I, I can't ask. I won't ask God for a sign. He, he effectively disobeyed God. Here's Hezekiah in similar circumstances with impending doom of some sort. And God says, I will provide rescue. And Hezekiah, it tells us in 2 Kings 20, is actually the one who asked for a sign. And so God says, I will move the shadow on the steps outside of your residence called Ahaz's steps. I can move them 10 steps. I can move that shadow 10 steps up or 10 steps down. Your call, Hezekiah. What do you want it to be? In a sense, this is that moment for Hezekiah that Ahaz had of, okay, you're going to ask for it? This is what I'm telling you. You choose. And Hezekiah does. He picks the one over the other, and God does that miraculously. And, and we see the contrast between father and son, Hezekiah back to Ahaz. Rest of, of chapter 38 is a psalm. It, it's, it's Hezekiah writing a song that sort of, sort of captures midlife crisis in a way, but it's particular to his circumstances. It's, it's written now from the perspective of a man who expected to die and who believed it was coming and who has now been rescued. And so it's a lament psalm because in some sense we see his grief as he's lamenting, looking from the perspective of one who is about to die, but then it ends with this great statement of faithfulness. Let me just read a little bit of this. Isaiah 38, verse 10. I said in the middle of my days, essentially the prime of my life, I said I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. The whole start of this psalm is a, is a reflection on mortality. It is an awareness that I, I suddenly, in the middle of my days, in the prime of life, had to face death. One of the realities of Old Testament writers is they do not have the fully formed understanding of the afterlife that you and I have with the blessing of the New Testament, the teaching of Christ and the apostles. Um, they knew that their souls would live on. They knew that they were departing to a place of death. This place was referred to as Sheol, but much of it is shadowy at this point. And so in verse 11, when Hezekiah speaks of not seeing the Lord, what he's talking about is, I won't see the Lord as I see him now in the land of the living. He's not saying that I will never see the Lord again once I die. He's saying the way I see him now, the way I see others now, that will change. And yet he doesn't speak with any certainty of what he will see. There's, there's something else but it won't be like it is now. Verse 12 is the idea of the Lord's rule over man's death. Essentially, when he's, what he's saying in verse 12 is when the Lord folds up your tent, the picnic is over, right? So when we get to this afternoon and we close down the tents, that's when you know the picnic is over and it's time to leave. And he uses the shepherd's tent here and says when it's folded up, there's no unfolding it. 
There's no, there's no putting the tent back up. He says, when the weaver is done on the loom and the thread is cut. In other words, when the, the, the project being done in fabric finally runs out of fabric and the final thread is cut, that's it. And these are all poetic ways of Hezekiah saying, Lord, you, you rule over death. When you bring down the tent, when you cut the fabric, that is the end. And he's resigning himself in verse 13. What, what may have been hard to accept in the morning is by nightfall inevitable. He now understands that this is what God's will is. And so it describes him then, he describes himself as crying out like a helpless bird. Bird that, that maybe has been wounded in some way, that is diseased in some way, and it is chirping, and it is, it, 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 it's sort of registering its sadness and its grief. And Hezekiah knows that, that he will make his pleas but ultimately, he cries out to the Lord to be his source of safety. Ultimately, as, as with so many lament psalms, there is an assurance that the Lord is the one I must trust. And so verse 15 transitions. The first verses are he's facing death, and it, it's inevitable. Verse 15, now he's been given the word from Isaiah. And so he says, what can I say? He, God, has spoken to me, and he's done it. I walk along slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. Lord, by such things people live, and in every one of them my spirit finds life. You have restored me to health and let me live. Indeed, it was for my own well-being that I had such intense bitterness, but your love has delivered me from the pit of destruction, for you have thrown all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. The living, only the living can thank you as I do today. A father will make your faithfulness known to children. The Lord is ready to save me. We will play stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Hezekiah is given a reprieve. Again, part of what you're reading here is sort of Old Testament uncertainty of, of, of what is in that shadowy time ahead. He's able to relate back to worship in the here and now. He's able to experience what it is now, but now he's got this whole new sense of mortality. Isaiah has now given to him by the Lord's hand 15 more years to walk through life, and Hezekiah's bitterness toward the approach of death is now an opportunity for praise. And now his joy is great. In fact, in verse 17, he says, there's an acknowledgement that there's more to this than just life and death. You have put my sins behind your back. You have, you have rescued me. You have forgiven me. Verses 18 and 19 again reinforce this sort of unfull picture of the resurrection. But what they should do for us as readers today who have a, a better glimpse in the New Testament of what's ahead, of what's in heaven, what they should do to us is say, your time here is short. Use it well. Worship now with, with God's people. Join in song with God's people. Speak of God's faithfulness to the next generation. Serve him while you have breath. Use this time for his glory. Why this psalm? In the middle of Isaiah's record of Hezekiah, why does this psalm fit here? It's a good question for us to ask at this moment. It's a, it's a helpful reflection on life and death, on one who faced death, but then had been given a reprieve. But I would say to you, there is a, there is a greater purpose here in the book of Isaiah. This is a reminder that as good of a king as Hezekiah was, as 
strong as he was in the moment in history coming in 10 years when he bows before the Lord and he leads the nation to trust in God. In spite of all that, he was a mere man. And he struggled with fears about death just like any person facing their own mortality. He was not some supernatural being. He was certainly not the Messiah. Hezekiah struggled because there was no royal decree that could postpone death. King could do anything, but he couldn't change his mortality. He couldn't stop the clock on his life. There's nothing supernatural to stop him from dying. Hezekiah is not the Messiah. And that's where Isaiah is taking us at the end of 38 and into chapter 39 to say, no, friends, it's not Hezekiah. Look at chapter 39, verse 1. At that time, Merodach, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Merodach of Babylon, of Babylon was a, a thorn in a serious flesh. One of the nations that that was able to sort of stand its ground and hold its own against the Assyrians was Babylon. Merodach had been, was king twice. He's king during this time period, and then he'll come back again later. And he is just a thorn in the Assyrians' flesh in terms of trying to stop them from taking over. But his first reign is 721 to about 710 BC. So right about the time his, his reign will end shortly after this point when he interacts with Hezekiah. Hezekiah has been delivered. Word gets back to Babylon. There's some thought in mind, perhaps, of if, if the God of this king has done something so remarkable as to spare this guy from death when he was surely dying, I should probably get to know this king. Maybe we can work together in some way. And so he sends envoys from Babylon to Judah with a present. Good job, Hezekiah. You're living. Let's make a friendship here. So read on. Isaiah 39, verse 2. Hezekiah welcomed the envoys gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said, what did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Hezekiah had just been delivered. Just been delivered from, from the verge of death and given life by God. He's seen God's hand in the most intimate of ways. He is living in a day of peace. The Assyrian siege is a decade away. And Hezekiah all too easily succumbs to the sin that so often comes with prosperity, though it doesn't even need prosperity to happen. Devin said it during his testimony, that sin of pride, that, that sin of wanting to compare well to someone else and to look better than you are. You look at all the pronouns in that section. His treasure house, his armory, his storehouses, his realm. When Isaiah comes and says, so what did they see? Hezekiah's own answer is, they have seen all that is in my house. They have seen everything in my storehouses. Here's, here's the king that just last week we said, yes, there's a righteous one left in Judah. 
who would bow before the Lord. And in this moment, Hezekiah just fails miserably. Second Kings, uh, Second Chronicles, I should say. Second Chronicles 32 is a parallel passage. You, you can look there later, but it, it fills in some of the details as to what's going on here in Second Chronicles 32. Verse 27 says, Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. He made for himself treasuries for silver, gold, precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses for grain and wine and oil and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself and flocks and herds in abundance for God had given him very great possessions. This same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David great sort of project that he does. Hezekiah prospered in all his works. Now listen to this. The writer of Chronicles says, so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, it's talking about what Isaiah is telling us, who had been sent to Hezekiah to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, his near death and being, being saved from that, God left Hezekiah to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. At the peak of Hezekiah's reign, when everything he did seemed to go right, when his public works projects worked, when his storehouses were full, when he was having to build more storehouses for the stuff that God was giving him, when God was prospering the nation under his leadership, God tested Hezekiah and he failed. We can sort of envision this. He's the king of a relatively small nation. Envoys have come from the king of a larger nation, Babylon. And if you're Hezekiah, you're the king of the small area and you're trying to impress the guys from the king of the large area. You're trying to say, hey, I, I know where you've come from in Babylon and look at what I've got here. Check out my kingdom. Man, I, I know your kingdom, I know your king must have some long, hard days. I know what that's like, because I got some long, hard days taking care of all this stuff. He is just trying to impress them with possessions, when in reality, what he should have been saying is, look what God has done. Look how God has provided. Look how God has blessed. And instead, it's in this moment that all Hezekiah can do is say, pretty impressive, isn't it? This kingdom of mine, this house of mine, these storehouses of mine, pretty big and impressive. He fails in this moment. And so Isaiah then says to him, if you look on in Isaiah 39, verse 5, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. We know from what we read last time that over the next 10 years, Hezekiah would continue to grow, that God by his grace would continue to work in Hezekiah's life, and God would ultimately deliver Jerusalem from the Assyrians using Hezekiah. But Isaiah has already made it clear that what you've done, Hezekiah, in boasting about your storehouses and your treasures and your cattle and your sheep, what you've done here, Isaiah, uh, Hezekiah, is devastating. 
and it will have consequences for your people. Because ultimately, one day, all this stuff, including the sons that God is going to give you, will be dragged away to Babylon. They will come back for it, and they will steal it, and they will drag the people away into exile. To make matters worse, Isaiah, uh, Hezekiah, in his short-sighted, childless sort of attitude at this point, actually thinks to himself, well, I won't be here when that happens. At least for me, it'll be peace and security. This is a guy who doesn't have any sons at the moment, who's not thinking past the nose on his face when he essentially thinks to himself, it says to Isaiah, the word you've spoken is good. And you're thinking, how is this good that all of your stuff and family is going to be taken to Babylon? And he thinks to himself, because as long as I'm here, I know I've got 15 years. That's all after me. I've got peace and security. Last week, we, we read... Now Hezekiah, the Syrians are coming and he cries out to the Lord. He pleads rightly to the Lord and he seeks wise, godly counsel and he repents of his sin and he desires that God's name be made great. So when you come to chapters 38 and 39, if you are at all disappointed, if you read this and go, that's kind of deflating, then you're right. Here was a good king who did Many right things who pursued righteous reformation. And then there's this. His pride and his selfishness are put on display for us to see. There's two things I just want to say to you in closing. Here's the good news. First, this happened, like I said, about 10 years before the Assyrian siege. God continued to work in Hezekiah's life. God continued to work to teach him humility and trust. He didn't abandon Hezekiah in that moment. The king's response to the threat that we'll see is a glorious example of God continuing to sanctify his people. And so when we look at Hezekiah, it's not a finger pointing exercise and a blame game. We look at Hezekiah and we, we can see ourselves. We can see our own foolishness. And yet there's our hope in those dark moments a failure when we have disobeyed the Lord. He is a God who loves his people and who desires to continue to grow them and to change them and sanctify them and, and use them to produce fruit, to bring them to repentance and to help produce fruit of repentance. It's a glorious example to us as we, we watch Hezekiah fall down badly and arrogantly and foolishly and selfishly to remember that God was not done. That was not his final word. It was rather that he continued to work in Hezekiah and what he, what he longs for us to do when we have fallen and failed and succumbed to temptation and sin is confess, is acknowledge our sin and repent before him and trust that he will continue to do the good work that he has begun. So Hezekiah's story in real time, didn't end with this. It actually moves on, and the Assyrian siege takes place, and a son is born, and it's shortly after the Assyrian siege, a few years after that, that Hezekiah dies. But for Isaiah's purpose in writing this vision given to him by the Lord, Hezekiah's story ends here. It's the last mention of Hezekiah, is this guy who's sitting in his palace thinking to himself, glad it's all peace and safety for me. 
tough luck on the folks coming after me. He gives us that last glimpse of Hezekiah as a reminder that Hezekiah, just like David before him, just like Moses before him, just like Abraham before him, were all good and godly men whom God used in various ways to, to provide deliverance for his people. They, they, Hezekiah comes from a long line of those raised up, empowered by God, used by God to shepherd his people. Each one was a vessel through which God's power flowed. And yet, Isaiah leaves us here to tell us again that each one proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are sinners. That, that ultimately, they still fail. They're still not perfect. They still need God's grace. They still have moments where in the midst of great acts of, of serving God, they lie and they cheat and they get angry and they get fearful. In Abraham, Moses, David, Hezekiah, and others, we get these glimpses of God using human instruments and delivering through human instruments. But each one falls short. And each one is designed to point us forward and to say, who will do this right? Who will be the Savior who is trustworthy? Who will be the one who is, who is truly righteous, whose motives won't be mixed, who won't be a little holy and a little unholy? Who is the one that we can trust as a deliverer always? The reason Hezekiah's story in Isaiah does not end with his God's glorious defeat of the Assyrians through Hezekiah and instead ends with this, is so that we would look and go, Lord, there must be another. There must be another king. There must be another one in the line of David. There must be one through whom your glory will flow and it will be undiminished by sin. There won't be any taking away of your glory. There won't be any stealing of that glory. There won't be any bragging about my possessions or my stuff. There won't be any foolish sin. Where is the one who will bring your salvation without bringing shame to your name? And that's where we are as we come to this point in Isaiah, in Isaiah 39. is left with Isaiah telling this powerful story so that he could say to us, don't put your hope in a man. Don't rest in a king. Don't rest in a pastor, don't rest in a president, don't rest in, you, you name it, don't, don't put your hope and stake it all in this individual because they will, they will bring shame, they will fail, they will do foolish things. Put your hope in the servant for, for whom, for Isaiah, for who is still to come. The one that Isaiah from chapter 40 on will begin to say, here comes one who is righteous in all his ways, who will suffer, who will be like a lamb led to the slaughter and who will take the punishment for our sins. Put your hope in Jesus. Where is your hope this morning? Where are you, where are you fully resting your hope? Is your confidence in the, the only one true Savior, and that is in Jesus Christ? Because that's what I want to, I want to plead with you this morning. Hezekiah shows us that even the best guy on the best day still fails, still sins. The best woman on the best day still fails, still does it wrong. Jesus Christ came in sinless glory, 
lived a life to show before us what the righteousness of God looked like, to fulfill God's law, and then gave himself on the cross that he, the perfect lamb of God, could bear our sins and die in our place, that by trusting in him we could have forgiveness and life. He is the better king. He is the better savior. He is the better deliverer. He is the one in whom we trust. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the true savior. We rest our hope in you. Thank you for reminding us again with another example in scripture of one that, that, that you show us your, your kind word of, of grace and mercy in not only preserving Hezekiah's life, but then using him for your name and your glory. Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters here who are struggling, battling, as we all do with, with sin and, and maybe some who feel hopeless who feel shame. Lord, I pray that today you would encourage them with hope that there is in repentance, there is, there is a Savior who longs to continue to use us for his glory, who continues to work out his will through sinful people as he transforms us increasingly into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, if there's any listening this morning who are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, would you, would you open their eyes today to see the beauty of the Savior Jesus Christ, and to rest fully in his death and resurrection for life. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.